Welcome to the War from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, send it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Well, it's time for another couple episodes of Soldiers of the Press from December 7th and December 14th of 1942. Soldiers of the Press! Covering today's tremendous news developments is a task that requires resourcefulness, disregard for personal danger, and devotion to duty under the most trying of circumstances. And among the many competent and skillful men representing the United Press in remote scenes of action, none more truly typifies the qualities of a soldier of the press than the man whose story we bring you now, Leo S. Disher, war correspondent. The story I want to tell you had it beginnings one day several weeks back. I'm not permitted to give you the exact date in the busy London office of the United Press. I'd come in from an assignment with the U.S. Atlantic Fleet and was giving a hand in London while awaiting the call for my next trip out. I was working on a confidential memorandum for our foreign editor, Joe Alex Morris, when an office boy interrupted me. Excuse me, Mr. Disher, but Mr. Morris wishes to see you in his office, sir. Okay. Uh, tell him I'll be along in a few minutes, will you? I want to put the finishing touches on this stuff I'm working on here. I think he wants to talk to you right away, sir. He said it's important. You're to come right in. Oh, thanks. Well, under the circumstances, I guess this will have to wait. Oh, Bill! Yeah? I'm expecting a phone call. If it comes, I'll be in Morris's office. Hello, Joe. You want to see me? That's right. Come on in, Disha. Oh, by the way, I think you better close that door behind you. Oh, sure thing. That's better. All right, then. Pull up a chair. Say, you know, this is beginning to sound interesting. What's up? I've just come from a conference at Allied Command Headquarters. What I'm about to tell you must be treated with the utmost confidence. I see. To get directly to the point, you are one of five UP men who've been designated by the Army and Navy commands for what is described as service elsewhere. Service elsewhere? Hmm. Any idea what that implies, Joe? Matter of fact, I've been given no further details, and I've been cautioned against speculation. You know, I have an idea that this could prove to be a really interesting assignment. I have an idea you're right. In any event, it seems clear that it's most important. The others who will share your assignment and your secret are Chris Cunningham, Ned Russell, Phil Alt, and Jack Paris. Now remember, not a word about this to anyone else. Check. I'll pick up a roll of adhesive tape as a precaution against talking in my sleep. Okay. And now, just one more thing. You're to report tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. to Major General John... That was the start of the greatest adventure of my life. I reported next morning as instructed. The weeks immediately following were miserable. I was given shots for just about every conceivable disease. And worse, I had to try to shrug off my perpetual headaches and lack of appetite with the explanation, hangover. I have an idea several unknowing members of the press corps must have wondered what had come over me. The others in the know fared no better and used the same stock excuse. Still, we managed to guard our secret well. No one caught on. Then, one morning, my doorbell rang at an early hour. I opened the door and was greeted by an army courier. 
Good morning, sir. I'm looking for a Mr. Leo Disher. I'm Disher. You're a correspondent for the United Press? That's right. I have an important message which I've been instructed to deliver in person. Do you mind if I see your credentials, sir? Oh, not at all. Just a moment. I'll get them out of here. Here you are. Oh, let's see now. Mm-hmm. This your signature? Yes. Very good. Sign this receipt, please, and here are you. Here you are, sir. I tore open the envelope he handed me and read its contents hurriedly. I was to report secretly three hours later at a designated headquarters fully equipped. The note concluded curtly, destination unspecified. Destination unspecified. That expresses it very well. With a number of offices, I slipped out of London through the blacked-out streets. After a jolting journey, we arrived in due course at our embarkation port. It was clear to everyone by now that this was no mere raid. The harbor was literally teeming with craft. Towering, grim warships, sleek destroyers, massive transports, and a variety of smaller boats reaching almost as far as the eye could see. I stowed my gear aboard a transport to which I was assigned by a young American lieutenant. Later, in the pitch black of a fog-shrouded night, we pushed off. Designation still unspecified. At length, we were called into the wardroom, where the commanding officer of the task force, to which I was attached, gave us our first definite news of what was up. Everyone listened tensely as his voice came over the public address system. Gentlemen, we're bound on an offensive mission. Our objective is North Africa. This particular task force has been assigned to take Iran, the great French North African naval base. We've planned an enveloping action. Motorized infantry columns will be landed on the beaches east and west of Iran to converge on the city. A party of 600 American soldiers and British and American sailors will attempt to penetrate Oran Harbor to crash the boom so the docks can be seized. This party will be detached at Gibraltar and will be put aboard two U.S. Coast Guard cutters which have been designated for this important task. I learned that one correspondent would be permitted to accompany the small force detailed to try to crash the harbor boom. I applied for that assignment and got it. Before we reached Gibraltar, I had an accident which almost put me out of action. I fractured an ankle in a fall during rough weather. But the ship's physician patched me up with a plastic cast and crutches. And I was hobbling about quite handily by the time we dropped anchor at the big rock fortress guarding the western entrance to the Mediterranean. There I got my first view of the cutter to which I had trusted my fate and met her skipper. Yes, sir, Mr. Disher, you picked yourself a berth on quite a ship. She never was intended to be a man of war, you know. She rolled so badly that even I get seasick. I think I'll manage all right, sir, if I can keep these crutches under me. My stomach is more stable than my underpinnings at this point. Well, you are at a bit of a disadvantage, all right. But you won't be the only lame one aboard. Take the engines, for instance. We brought this cutter across the Atlantic, you know. But her blooming engines gave out on us once about halfway over, and then again here at Gibraltar. So that was my ship, insignificant by comparison with the larger warcraft and transports towering over her. And with her engines a question mark, even her skipper's mind. But I've never met a finer lot than the men who sailed her. There were American and British naval officers, hard-muscled dynamite-toting commandos, keen, efficient American assault troops. Midnight, on the morning of November 8th, we were routed out of bed. 
I turned out to find the British naval officer who commanded the task force, Lieutenant Colonel George Marshall of Jacksonville, Florida, Lieutenant John Cole of Lexington, Kentucky, and other officers already on the bridge. The commander called the chief engineer on his speaking tube and shouted, Thousands of lives depend on what you say next. If you say the engines will get us to our destination, we'll stay aboard. But if you say they will and they don't, I'll see that you are court-martialed. Aye, aye, sir. As chief engineer of this cutter, sir, I'll stake my professional honor that they will get us through. And so we went. In the murky blackness, I was barely able to see the outlines of the main convoy, which we were leaving behind as we veered off toward Oran. The commander stepped to the PA system and calmly addressed his final remarks to his command. Gentlemen, the zero hour will come for us at 3 a.m. We are on a difficult and dangerous mission. You all know your assigned tasks. Go in and do your jobs like soldiers. And may God bless you. Slowly, the cliffs of the Algerian coast took form, and I could make out the lights of Oran twinkling to the starboard. I pulled on a life preserver and tied another to the heavy plastic cast on my ankle. We were running without lights, but I could see the outlines of the other cutter and two motor launches following us. We passed undetected almost to the harbor mouth. Then suddenly, a searchlight blazed out from the shore, groped uncertainly in the dark for a moment, and then picked us up. Shore batteries opened up on us immediately. Suddenly, the commander ordered, All men below decks, lie flat. We're approaching the boom. Shells from the shore batteries were crashing all around, and machine gun bullets were spattering on the ship's steel. The cutter shuddered as we crashed the steel cables over the boom and raced inward. The commandos, whose job it was to seize French warships in the harbor, got away safely. We started our run across the harbor under heavy fire. Then French warships started shelling us. The din was deafening. Someone knocked the crutch from my hand. In groping for it, I discovered bodies on the floor. I heard Colonel Marshall's voice above the din. Landing parties away! We had bumped into a cruiser at the shore end of the harbor. She still was firing at us with her smaller guns. Our turrets blew up and our depth charges exploded. Steam broke loose on the starboard side. I crawled from the bridge to the deck. Suddenly I was caught by a blast which sent stabbing red-hot pains through both of my legs. I was hit and bleeding profusely. I pulled myself on my one good leg. Another shell hit us, and again I went down. As I groped over the piles of bodies, I heard a rush for the companionway. For a moment, I thought it was a French boarding party. Then someone grabbed my arm and shouted, Help me, partner! Help me! I reached for him, but another shell crashed on the bridge, and I went down again with pain knifing at new wounds. The ship was an inferno. I groped my way down two port ladders through the flames. I knocked off my helmet and dropped into the water. My life preserver had been punctured by shrapnel, so I struggled free from it and swam 100 yards to the hawser of a French merchantman. I clung there, attempting to gain strength while bullets splattered all around in the water. I made another try for it and struck off between the ship and the pier. I saw a rope dangling from the pier and summoned enough strength for one final effort. As I caught it, a soldier grabbed me from above and I rolled out onto the pavement. A shot struck me in the heel of my broken leg. I managed to crawl 75 yards to a wall street, though. It was being raked with gunfire. A spent bullet hit me in the temple. I was unable to go further and just lay there. I learned that a French patrol had found me an hour and a half later. I came to in an underground air raid shelter. Then I was taken by truck to a French hospital. On November 10th, a French nurse came into my room and flung open the window. Listen, my American friend. You hear? The armistice has been signed. Your American troops are entering Oran. France is raising her help once more. 
accompanying those American troops was Phil Alt, whom I had last seen in the London UP Bureau. American and French officers directed him to me, and I was able to fulfill my assignment to Iran by dictating my story to him. That story, one of the most dramatic of the war, was carried in newspapers and broadcast by radio stations throughout the free world. Ten days later, Disher was able to hobble on his crutches once more. As fellow war correspondents looked on, Major General Lloyd R. Fredendall pinned the Army Medal of the Purple Heart on Disher's field jacket and presented him with the citation which read, Leo S. Disher, Jr., while serving with the United States Landing Force in the capacity of war correspondent at Oran Harbor, distinguished himself by extraordinary heroism and meritorious performance of duty against an armed enemy. In the face of withering enemy fire, although several times wounded, Disher remained at his post on the vessel and continued to report for the public press a lucid, accurate, detailed account of the action. After being ordered to abandon ship, Disher swam to shore and, though again wounded four times, continued to perform his duty in an exemplary manner with complete disregard for his personal safety. Leo Disher at Oran, Harold Gard at Singapore, Joe Custer and Robert C. Miller on Guadalcanal, Henry Gurrell and Richard McMillan in the Libyan desert. These are but a few of the long list of United Press correspondents who have faced enemy gunfire, endured privation, braved pestilence and capture to obtain at first hand the stories behind the official communiques. We will return soon with another of these dramatic personal stories of the soldiers of the press. Be sure to listen. And meanwhile, listen for United Press News on the air. Look for it in your favorite newspaper. It is your guarantee of the world's best coverage of the world's biggest news. Today's war correspondents perform their tasks under battle conditions. Many of them have suffered searing disabling wounds in performance of their duty. Among the many soldiers of the press who comprise the staff of the United Press, there are others who have been called upon for yet another kind of bravery, to remain at their posts in hostile and war-threatened capitals at the risk and frequently at the sacrifice of their freedom. Such a man is the correspondent whose story we bring you now, Robert T. Belair manager of the former United Press Bureau in Tokyo. The story I have to tell is not pretty. It's a story of inhumanity, of brutality. A story of what happened to those Americans who fell into Japanese hands when Premier Tojo and the Japanese military clique plunged their country into war with the United States. I know the facts all too well, because I was one of that American group in Tokyo. After nearly six years on a variety of assignments in the Far East... The United Press had sent me to Japan early in 1941 as manager of its Tokyo Bureau. It was an uneasy and unpleasant assignment from the first. Police paid frequent visits to the United Press Bureau. Censorship became progressively more strict and hampering. One day in early November, a Japanese plainclothes man spent the entire day reading every item I had written. 
As he shuffled through my papers, he would turn to me at intervals and say, I very sorry for you. I very, very sorry for you. The next indication I had that I was in for serious trouble of some sort came several weeks later. A knock at the door of my apartment aroused me from a sound sleep. I snapped on a light and slipped into my robe, glanced at my watch. It was nearly midnight. I shuffled to the door in my slippers and released the latch. It was pitch black outside and a cold wind was blowing. A woman's figure suddenly emerged from the shadows. I recognized her as one of my Japanese neighbors. And may I please come in? Well, certainly do come in. <laughs> you, you surprise me. I've been asleep. Yes, but I have important word for you. You, American, have been my friend. Now you in danger. For safety, you must burn all papers. You do not want to fall into hands of police. Well, why? I don't understand. Well, what's the matter? What's going on? Do you think the war is about to start? So sorry. I can only warn you. You'll soon to be arrested. Please burn papers, as I say. It save you much trouble later. Well, I will by all means. And I'm deeply grateful to you for your warning. But look, you, you shouldn't have done it. You risked imprisonment by coming here like this, didn't you? Is so. And for that reason, I must go quickly home without being seen. But I am honored to do you small service. Recently, you did me great kindness. Goodbye and best luck. Sayonara. De Marigato. Sayonara. I stood there for a moment, trying to remember what great kindness she had meant. Then it came back to me suddenly. Two weeks earlier, I had given her, the wife of a former Japanese cabinet officer, a bit of cloth, a package of needles, and two papers of pins. In gratitude for those small gifts, she had risked imprisonment or worse to bring me her warning. Small items loom large in a country that has been at war for six years. Well, I took her warning and sorted my papers carefully, both at home and at the office. And it's impossible to say how much future grief and abuse that saved me. And I was not long learning the grave implications of what I'd been told. You remember the circumstances. A Japanese peace mission was in Washington discussing possible terms of settlement of differences between Japan and the United States. The American colony in Tokyo was extremely apprehensive. We knew that the situation was critical. I'd worked late the night of December 7th. At about 5.15 a.m., my house phone rang. Hello? Who? Oh, Dome. Yes, this is Bel Air of United Press. What? No. Yeah. Yeah, I have it all. Japanese planes have attacked Pearl Harbor. War is to be declared at 11 a.m. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear it, too. And thanks. Thanks for calling. There was nothing I could do except get ready for the inevitable police. They came at 6 a.m., I was carted off to a concentration camp near Tokyo in which I was to spend six of the most miserable months of my life. The camp was a former girls' school between Tokyo and Yokohama. For two months, we were held incommunicado, permitted to see or talk to no one from the outside. Thirteen of us were packed into one small, dismal room. We complained that disease was spreading because of the unsanitary and overcrowded conditions. And once, one of the correspondents told the Stanford University-educated doctor that there were too many men in the room. To this, he replied, <laughs> Well, why don't you then put the skirts on some of them? Once a week, we were offered a bath, all 13 of us, 
in the same water previously used by 30 police and several greasy cooks. We had no medical attention, no heat, during Tokyo's freezing winter. And food? Let me tell you about the food we received in that Japanese prison camp. Our lunch was typical. We were given greenish whale meat or rotted fish heads boiled with alfalfa. Our Japanese keepers in that internment camp employed all manner of mental torment in an attempt to break our morale. Once I was called into the main office. Your name, please. I'm Robert Belair. You asked to have me brought here? Belair. Yes. You write for United Press? Yes. As you see this, this letter from your wife. Oh, swell. And these pictures, your children? Oh, hell, I'm very I, glad... You to... cannot have them. See, I what? tear them up. Oh, please. Uh, please, let, let me have the pieces. Let me put them back together, Keep please. Keep away. You get nothing. Go. Out. That will give you some idea of the treatment American internees receive from the Japanese. While Japanese internees in the United States were living in luxury in White Sulphur Springs. But many fared much worse than I. There was the water treatment for those our captors tried to make confess to spying. Do you ever hear how the water treatment works? I'll tell you. First, your arms and legs are bound together with your knees under your chin. Then you're suspended by a rope, head down. Then your jailers begin pouring buckets of water over your head. It strangles you. It pours up your nose. You can't breathe. Eventually, you lose consciousness. And that's just the beginning. Next, you're slapped back to consciousness or possibly beaten back to your senses with a rubber hose. And then you're given an opportunity to confess things of which you're not guilty. If you refuse, the treatment begins all over again. Some of our group were forced to kneel Japanese fashion on iron bars for hour after hour until muscles ached beyond endurance and the flesh on their legs broke open. These things happened to people like J.B. Powell of the China Weekly Review, and Otto Delicious of the New York Times and others. At least one newspaper correspondent interned by the Japanese never will walk again as a result of such treatment, and several will limp for the rest of their lives. All of us were frequently threatened with execution by firing squads. The only bright moment of our internment came April 18th, when Jimmy Doolittle and his fellow flyers skimmed over Tokyo's rooftops and dropped the first bombs, but certainly not the last ever to fall on Japanese soil. We heard the explosions and from our barred windows could see the planes and the smoke of burning buildings rising in their wake. That day all of us took new hope. At long last, on May 30th, we learned that arrangements had been completed for our return home in exchange for Japanese internees held in America. We were called before Inspector Kikuchi of the Metropolitan Police. He greeted us with the first smile any of us had seen on his face during our six months in jail. I have just gone from Japanese home office. But in spite of war, Japanese newspaper correspondents in the United States are being well treated. The Home Office now is trying to think of some way to be nice to you. Please wait. We waited two days. Then we were invited to what was probably one of the strangest parties ever given any group of newspaper men. We were escorted to the famous Sano Hotel. We were greeted by ten young Japanese who spoke excellent English. They informed us that they represented the Pacific War Relief Council. For 30 minutes, we were shown newsreels of Japanese war successes, 
while Japanese seated beside us interpreted the insulting titles on the screen. Next, we were given the best meal any of us had seen since long before the war began. And midway through the luncheon, one of the young Japanese arose to speak. You are extremely fortunate in being permitted to leave for home within a fortnight. Others must stay behind. If each of you write an article on Japan and the kind treatment you have received, we can raise 4,000 yen from the English-language newspapers in Japanese-occupied areas. We will use these funds to aid your fellow countrymen. Japan's kind treatment of us. I arose and thanked the chairman on behalf of the Americans present for the opportunity of aiding our fellow countrymen. I said that after our own experiences, we were eager to do everything possible to improve the lot of others in our position. But I explained that none of us could write for anyone except our respective employers, and added that I was sure that all would be willing to contribute to raise the fund of 4,000 yen. At that, we were all told to go up to private rooms. Smilingly, our Japanese host said, we would have an opportunity to take hot private baths. Suspecting what was coming, we declined. Then we were ordered to take those baths. The chairman and another member of the Japanese committee accompanied to my door. They opened the door. And I could see that my work was cut out for me. A typewriter was in the center of the room. Here are typewriter in paper. You write the story for us now? This is for your own good. Some Japanese officials do not favor repatriation of you American newspaper men. They are afraid you will write anti-Japanese propaganda when you get home. Well, what do you want me to write about? I have it here, this slip of paper. The Home Office wants you to write on the topic, China should cooperate with Japan. But I refuse. Then you will never leave Japan. You will never leave this room. I choke you until you do write for me. (coughs) You will write now? You will write now? When I regain consciousness... I tapped out a few lines, making them sound as much like Japanese propaganda as possible. Japanese cliches no American would think of using. The august virtue of his imperial majesty, co-prosperity sphere. When the chairman returned, he beamed. The short article must have sounded to him exactly like one of Tojo's speeches. And that's what I wanted. I knew no one would ever mistake that tripe for the sentiments or willing expression of any American. Two weeks later, we were permitted to sail for home, a long, torturous journey by way of Lorenco Marcus and the Rio de Janeiro. Finally, on the morning of August 26, we sighted the skyline of New York, dimly visible through the mists of the harbor. A group of merry old priests and nuns aboard had formed a choir. As we moved slowly toward our pier, they sang America. And suddenly, the Statue of Liberty loomed up through the fog. A lump tightened in my throat. Tears welled up in my eyes. I was home. Home from my United Press assignment to Tokyo. one of many correspondents of the United Press who have faced hardship and danger to cover their assignments, to gather and write the facts, the truth which every American expects in his news. 
On every news front, in every news center, such men are on the job, reporting the news accurately, completely, and speedily. We will return soon with another of these programs, dramatizing the experiences of these soldiers of the press. Be sure to listen. And meanwhile, look for United Press News in your favorite newspaper. Listen for it on the radio. It is your guarantee of the world's best coverage of the world's biggest news. Welcome back. I definitely, I definitely thought both of them were great listening. Um, I particularly did appreciate the second one with the story of what it was like for, uh, those who found themselves prisoners of the Japanese. And we'll probably take a look at this, uh, more as time goes on. But I, I also really like the, uh, little detail, uh, about the, uh, Japanese neighbor lady who, really showed him uh, some kindness because some of you know i i think that was one of those rare reminders of the fact that not everyone who happened to be uh, japanese was actually an enemy that will do it for today if you uh, have a comment email me box13 at greatdetectives.net i welcome your story or that of loved ones who served during world war ii Ken Curlin provides our opening theme music, KenCurlin.com. I am your host, Adam Graham. This uh, series is provided as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, GreatDetectives.net.